Today, we're going to take a trip over to Italy and explore the music of 16th century Ferrara, which is one of the musical hotspots of the Renaissance. Our guest, Laurie Strauss, noted and renowned musicologist, will give us some background on some specific female composers that she's done groundbreaking research on. It's pretty incredible stuff coming up on Early Music Monday. Okay, I am super psyched for today's episode. Jazzed, if you will. Now, I say that word with delicacy because I know many people in the Utah area are feeling lacrimose about a certain professional athletic team playing the sport of basketball called the Utah Jazz, who just lost in the playoffs, again, and are now done. I am outraged. But I'm going to work past my feelings today, and we're going to talk about what jazzes me up for reals, which is Renaissance music, obvi. First, I want to give a big shout-out to one of our listeners, McAvoy Campbell. He wrote in with the best metaphor for how to define line. Talking about our previous two episodes about line with Andrew, uh, he said one of the best the best metaphor he can come up with is mosh pit diving, which is amazing. So I pictured Jack Black. The minute he said this, I was like, oh my gosh, he's totally right. He said, on one hand, line is the person who is sustained and passed around but it's also the myriad of hands and bodies supporting that line directly and indirectly. Boom. So picture Jack Black at the beginning of the movie School of Rock. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. He jumps to crowd surf, and no one catches him. He's like, nobody caught me. That was lame. And then at the end of the movie, he crowd surfs, and everyone catches him. So young composers not understanding the concept of line – they, he, they haven't struck that balance of the person crowd surfing and the person passing the person around. And then good composer's sense of line is, you know, a good, a good crowd dive. Incredible. McAvoy, thank you. Feel free to, to write in with any more comments and uh, things you want to, me to know because I understand line better now. So thank you. That's awesome. You can send those comments to soundofagesquire at gmail.com or you can write it in the reviews or send us a message on our website. Any of those places, those messages will get to me and uh, and I'll make sure the world hears. Okay, so Ferrara. When I read anything about Ferrara during the Renaissance, it's kind of the home of the avant-garde music scene it's a big time arts scene big time music place music capital well not capital but hot spot and it's where all the like really kind of far out madrigals were being composed Jeswaldo would go back periodically and exploring the depths of dissonance you know I picture Ferrara as like some, it's like a mixture between Tortuga from Pirates of the Caribbean, where it's just this lawless land mixed with maybe like a a hippie community in the 60s and 70s in California, mixed with some kind of like the the Vienna school, uh, and like Schoenberg and all those, like really academic all at the same time. So it's like those three places swirling in his one place. That's how I picture it when I read it, read about it and study it. So, and there's so much great music that came from there. And I'm not going to talk too much because I'm going to let Laurie do the speaking for me because she knows a 
crap ton more than I do because she's studied it in depth for more than a decade. It's amazing. Her knowledge and discoveries about the music of this time are incredible. And if you're looking for more single-sex um, renaissance repertoire, specifically for upper voices, once she gets her website up and scores up, this is going to be a huge resource. And I think the gateway to real ear training, real sight singing, oh, I could go on about how significantly important I think young singers singing Renaissance music, especially when it's like in the same tessitura, so single sex repertoire, but it doesn't necessarily have to be like similar range repertoire really would be even the better way to describe it because of all the voice crossing and you're following your line and it creates musical independence and ensemble unity. It's just so good. But the stories that she shares are amazing and unbelievable. So without further ado, we turn to Laurie Strauss. I'm really glad I stumbled upon that uh, that video and that article that you wrote. Okay, um, yeah. And I, I was just like, why have I never read this? Why why do I not know this lady? This is amazing. Well, so because, because it's it's been uh, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> I'm I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. So speaking of that, then I'd love to hear part of that journey and like how you got from hey i think i want to study and do this for a living or to where you are now oh okay well um i'll can i do a tldr i don't know um <laughs> it started it started oh gosh back in the early 70s when my mother built a zuckerman harpsichord kit whoa and yeah, my mom was one of those uh, one of those people that just got bored if she didn't have yeah to do right. Um, yeah, and she built a Sukumen harpsichord, and I was ten years old, eleven years old, and we lived quite close to um, a place called Penton House in London, which has a wonderful collection of uh, of harpsichords, of original harpsichords. And back in those days, everything was a little bit kind of relaxed. And so I started, you know, I got really interested in my mother's harps chord and I used to go up there and play my uh, associated board exam piano pieces that were appropriate on the harpsichords there. I actually, when I was 12 years old, I was playing, you know, these original instruments. There's one that was supposed to belong to Handel, you know, it Whoa. Just, you know, right. So kid, kid, <laughs> yeah. and everybody's really relaxed about it. I'm sure it's not like that now. I think of um, my high school students, and I'm like, I wouldn't even let them look at that. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I fell in love with. I, I loved history, and I loved music, and um, you know, it was just part of part of growing up. And then when I got to high school, I had uh, terrific um, high school music teachers i played piano for the choir and then got into the mad madrigals group which was uh 16 singers yeah um, wow and um i just i just fell in love with it and i never wanted to leave so um instead of going i was at high school at uh, an american school in london and instead of going mm. back to the states for college i decided to stay here and um audition for the royal college of music um and got in and yeah. um you know mm. it, it kind of went from there when yeah. i left college, i knew that i didn't want to be a i'm still primarily a keyboard player yeah but I had terrible performance anxiety and i knew that i didn't want to be a um a soloist i played brandenburg five once and that was it right <laughs> Never I can't imagine that. why. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> so, so I went into MDing and um, I, I got a job working for Tony Rooley and Emma Kirkby for the Concert of Music. And mm. 
was answering the phones and stuff, but also editing music for them. So, you know, it was just like this, this, this organic process of moving from, from, from one thing to another, um, then decided I wanted to do a PhD. Uh, and um, because being a professional musician uh, was difficult when I was a, also a parent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the battle, right? <laughs> Leaving babies in practice rooms and, and, and stuff, <laughs> or, or, or dressing rooms or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but my. They're that big, but when they start running around, you know, it's not so, not so easy. <laughs> right. I and got a job and, um, I, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just been like, a, I mean, I wouldn't call it seamless because sure. you know, no, no musician's career, unless they are like <laughs> super lucky is, is, is seamless, right. but, um, but you know, there's kind of a logical progression, but why it took so long to bring the book out, why it took so long to do all of that stuff. Well, I am an academic with two kids and yeah. I, Wrecked an ensemble, and um, you know, my book was published in the same year that my younger son um, left high school. Yeah, wow, that's a crazy time. And so you know, you launched all of your children all at once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> wow. And so, just just for for everyone who's listening, all. 12 people i think or whatever i don't know um what is to tell us a little bit more about your book and how the idea came about and and those kinds of things okay. and the title yeah so 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 my book which was published at the end of 2018 is called women and music in 16th century ferrara and again those the roots of this go all the way back to the 1980s when the concert of music brought out a disc called Concerto delle Donne, um, which was kind of a reaction to uh, Tony Newcomb's book on the Madrigal at Ferrara, which was his PhD. So, you know, there was this, this thing. Right. And I was working for, for the consort at the time, and um, I produced some of the scores and some of the continual parts and everything. So I knew about this group um, and I met the singers who were performing on the disc and I never quite forgot that experience and as I was finishing my PhD something in my PhD which was on a magical composer Mark Antonio Ingenieri oh yeah kind of locked in uh with with the with the magical at Ferrara and, the, and and those singers um and so the project started as as this kind of well so 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 surely this isn't the, the sum total of what we know about these women. Um, and yeah. Tony's book was a was, is you know it's just fabulous, and I could never have got started without his incredible scholarship and those amazing appendices and all of that you know all, all of that stuff. But I wanted to know more, and so started to investigate that and got together with some performers who were interested in doing that. Um, and that was a, a group led by Deborah Roberts, Musica Secreta, and I became a co-director of the group. Yeah. Um, about, about 200, about 2000, about 200. I became a co-director of the group in, 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 in the year 2000, um, whilst we were kind of producing babies and doing all that. <laughs> <laughs> papers, papers <laughs> flying, just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Editing scores whilst I'm vastly pregnant, you know. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Small babies, small babies running around rehearsal rooms. Yeah. We all, you know, we had the bad mothers club. You know, this is just yeah. The, the women's group. Yeah. You know, accommodate, and actually, you know, it became very clear that this is exactly the way things were with the women in Ferrara. You know, wow. they had they were negotiating pregnancies and children and well one thing we didn't have to deal with was chronic malaria but they were dealing with chronic malaria <laughs> just a small little <laughs> thing everyone in ferrara had chronic malaria the place was like a mosquito pit and it still is oh. so, you know in those days there was no way of treating it. so if you didn't die of malaria you had it for all of your life oh my yeah i know fun fact about that about sounds like a paradise let's all move there <laughs> well the music was great yeah, it um, was 
That was so great. So, 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 so I got really, you know, I just gradually started to, to, to get more interested in the ensemble. So in 2009, I finally got some sabbatical leave and I had a proposal book proposal in, uh, on the work that I'd done on the, um, on the concerto themselves, um, and performance practice and all that sort of stuff that we'd been doing for, for, for years. And I wanted to go to Ferrara just to tie up a few loose ends in the archives. Yeah. And I got there and within 48 hours of, uh, hitting some bits of the archive that I hadn't seen before, I suddenly found all these connections with the convents. Yeah. And so I got back to my hotel and I emailed the commissioning editor at Cambridge and I said, you know that proposal I sent you? You're going to have to bin it. I'm really sorry because I, I can't write that book anymore because there's something else going on here. Yeah. And it, and it took nearly 10 years after Whoa. that. And I had to do the work of almost like two more PhDs because I, 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 every time I, I moved a little bit further back in the history of, of what was going on at the court, I found something else and then I would move back and then I'd find something and then I'd move back. And, and so it ended up being this great kind of panoramic view. And uh, as I've, I've said, what I've tried to do is is put the women at the center of the inquiry, not kind of on the periphery, sure, or, or in a little box. You know how in textbooks you get uh, you get like a little box saying "professional women in the 16th century," and there's this little thing about Ferrara and the Concerto delle Dame, um, and it's in this it's it's in a highlighted box in the textbook. Yeah, and the, and, and the text flows around it like an island <laughs> yeah. yeah right almost as if it doesn't have the same context yeah yeah it's like the grand narrative of music history just just kind of forms these little ripples around the women in music history and then it closes back in, back over them again as right. if you know they have no uh they have no bearing on the rest of the story and so right. i thought so i'm I, i'm gonna see what the story story looks like if you take it from the perspective of looking at the women and seeing what happens yeah you know, it's going out rather than just the water flowing around um and 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 that's what i did and in the in the process of doing that i learned just how much the the women of the court and the women in the convents were in constant con contact with each other yeah. and you know, you couldn't say that there is a there's a, a sacred style and a secular style um, that is, you know, those two things are so porous. Right. And you know, we tend to look at, okay, I'm I'm a scholar. I'm gonna look, or I'm, I'm we're a performing group. We're gonna do motets. Right? We're gonna yeah. do sacred music, or we're going to do madrigals. And you know, we see those things as really distinct repertoires and they just, you know, they're just not. Right. And, and, and so there's all of this kind of flow back and forth between the convents. Also, you know, the, the women at the court were actually really, you know, fairly constrained by their lives at court. And the women in convents, you'd think that they were constrained and they were physically constrained to the you know, to, right, to the, the space. space. Right. Yeah. But in terms of their, their artistic and intellectual um, and emotional lives, they are, they are kind of really, you know, they're really free to explore things that women outside the convent aren't. And they have time because yeah. our, their job is to sing. They sing yeah. more than they do anything but sleep. Uh, more, more, even sleep actually they they, they sing yeah. more than anything including sleep so wow. singing eight to seven to eight services a day plus masses plus you know, requiem masses that have been paid for plus you know you know maybe an extra set of vespers plus you know all of these all of these things their job this is their these are the professional women musicians yeah they this is their job not just that's their amazing job because 
the convents depend on music to bring in income for like sung masses or whatever. So they sure. are, in essence, professionals. And they have, in, if you've been a choir director, <laughs> you've been a choir director, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're a choir director in, in, in a school. You know what, uh, what a job it is putting together a concert. If you're a choir director in a church, you know what a job it is putting together music for a Sunday. You've got to come up with uh, Holy Communion and Matins and even song, and you've got to come up with all the all the hymns and the anthems and the songs, and you've got to get everyone. That's one day and three services. And usually that's like a once a week yeah. thing yeah. for the whole for the whole days where the services nowadays. That's typically like you know once yeah. a week, but when you're doing that. Every day, all day. Every single day, all day, right? So, uh, But that makes sense why they're bringing in so much new music and why there's so much music being produced by within the convent itself, like you talk about, and then without because for all these have, services, they're, they have to be yeah. – well, I mean, where else do you pull music? Yeah, yeah. You, 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 you get music wherever you can and you adapt it. If it's not for women's voices, you you adapt it. I mean, you're not going to be singing polyphony at every service, right? Right, it's right. Be plain chant, but they also harmonize plain chant. So, and they're doing this uh, as a kind of extemporized practice. They're basically singing backing vocals, and you know, I can I I, I like to bring in people who've never done this before, and I can have them singing extemporized harmony to a plain chant in an hour. Because yeah. if you have sung backing vocals, you know where your part is, right? You know kind of which note of the harmony you're going to take. Yeah. So this is what this is what extemporized polyphony is, is like. You know the rules. Yeah. Uh, and you know the tune because it's because you know the plain the, the chant sometimes particularly they don't change. You know, right. They got eight of them. Right. So you know how it goes, and you can sing, you can sing harmonies to it. So yeah. they're also they're not just singing uh they're not just singing dots they are right. also temporizing. Um, yeah. And and everything. to me that what you just said well something else that you said before to uh, the the whole point of uh the professional choir I conduct Sound of Ages and with this podcast is to show how relevant early music is to today and how it's really not that different at all to the music of today. And so when you talk about like that, it was their job and you talk about planning the music first and then you talk about how practical they were about like, well, okay, well this music was written for three sopranos and a tenor because that's what this church had, but now we're this place and let's just adapt it. I think I think a lot of my colleagues who don't spend time digging into early music at like at all have this kind of misperception that early music is this sacred cow and whatever's on the page is the most 100% authoritative do not change and the scholars will kill you if you mess it up. Like, I think that's sometimes, like, the at least that's the perception that I had, because I was like, I don't know enough to do this. But then as I've been studying and talking with musicologists and things, just like what you just said, it's, no, no, well, we we have this these voices, so let's just change it. Let's make the bass line an octave higher, and then you just improvise a harmony here. And and my my high school students are great at just like picking out harmonies when we're supposed to be singing in unison. I was like, no, okay, but this is written in unison. Stop doing that. So like, you're right. They can do it intuitively, but they, and so it, it's no different than the music from back then. And I think that's so yeah, and, amazing. Oh, oh and, and you, know, you know, there are so many, so many missives by bishops saying, cut that out, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Plain and unison chant, okay? <laughs> That's so <laughs> awesome. It happens all the time. It's like the nuns, you know, just stop it with the trophy <laughs> and, the, and the extemporization, you know, just sing unison chant because it's it 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 smacks of kind of vanity or or right. folly or whatever. But on the other side, you've got people, um, you know, other other 
people from within the, within the church saying, no, 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 you know, people come to the church to hear the nun singing because it's so amazing. And they stop their kind of their gaming and their blaspheming and, yeah. and, 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 you know, and they come along and they are brought to God by, by these beautiful voices. So right. let everyone, let everyone do whatever they can. Right. Yeah. To, to, uh, to bring people to, to bring people to church. So, so whilst, you, you know, we do, yes, there is this really strong discourse of disapproval about women singing. On the other hand, there are some, there are many more or, or as many pragmatic voices saying, no, 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 no. We want this right. because it's a good thing, you know? Just, yeah. And, and, and so, you know, whilst, whilst the rules might be, you know, they, they shouldn't be singing or you know, right. Paul's must not speak in church. Right, and, right. Uh, the, Very the, the misunderstood women, scripture, but yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, so you, you've got other people just just going, you know, just just relax. This is, this is how we keep it. And it's also about social order, right? It's also right. civic order that if people are enjoying their lives and they enjoy going uh, to hear these services um, and, you know, they'll come along because the music is great. Why not? Why yeah. not? Aren't we trying to bring as many people in as possible, right? Isn't that the goal? So why are we... Yeah, yeah. You know... and, the, and the women, and, and, and when you think that convents are like the heart and soul of a Renaissance city, there, there are people who, 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 who say, you know, if you look at a city and you look at the health of the convents, and you can judge the health of the city, not just the hmm. physical health, but the spiritual health of the city. If the convents are uh, well appointed and the nuns are happy and you know the things are going great and they're prosperous and busy and and, and all that stuff, then then this then the city is going to be the same. But if the convents are in disrepair, uh, you know, if the music isn't good, if the you know if the nuns are unhappy and and, and all that stuff, then that's a it's a gauge interesting the... and why do you think that that was or that is that's like well, it's it's kind mind of mind-blowing to me I, I i sort of look at it as as almost like they're almost like vestal virgins right you know they are yeah. they're responsible the reason that they are there the spiritual reasons that nuns are there is it is so that they can do these uh, seven or eight, depending on what order you're in, uh, services a day. You have, you know, the job of nuns and monks is the Opus Dei, the recitation of the 150 Psalms uh, of, of the Old Testament every single week. And those are yeah. all divided up within those those seven or eight services a day. Their job is, to, is the continual re recitation of the Psalms with all the other things that go around it. And that is what keeps the community spiritually healthy mm. and so and and practically you know um the messed up stuff about uh, about women being forced into convents well some were but some were forced by circumstance rather than by anything else because sure. first of all uh the way things worked with trying to keep uh, keep uh, a family's wealth together. Mm. Only, most families could only afford for one daughter to marry mm. in the secular world. Um, and the other daughters would have to be looked after in adulthood some way or another. And the mm. most expedient way was for them to join a convent. And it's not just closing them away. What that did is that was also a workforce, the city. Mm. Um uh, as well so they would be they would be providing all sorts of economic services for people in the city just i mean just right, stop, right? Um, but also women had to be safe and if, and if a mother dies and she's left young children in or young daughters in a household the daughters are not considered to be safe from anyone not from their brothers their fathers uncles mm. male service anything like that so the safest place for them is the convent so that's, yeah. this is, I mean, this is get, getting getting on further. You know, we, we, you talked about my article about Leonora Deste. So yeah. here she is. She's a four-year-old princess when her mother dies. Yeah, wow. 
she's four years old her mother dies uh in uh, well not exactly in childbirth but just after childbirth or her, like her 13th child she's still in her birth, Borgia, when she dies and uh leonora is her only living daughter um and there was another daughter who died hmm. very very young um but leonora is four and her father, Alfonso, has nowhere to put her. Right. Because his mother is dead. His sister, Isabella, lives in, the, you know, the great Isabella d'Este. She's in yeah. uh, uh, She's in Mantua. Um, mm. He doesn't have anyone, anyone to look after her. And male courts and female courts were separate. Mm. Um, and there's, so there's no one to look after her. Yeah. Go to the convent, man. Nowhere else for her to go. Right. He can't bring a four-year-old girl into his court. Yeah. Wow. She goes to the convent, where she would she would have been staying with her mother anyway, because as many you know people people think of Lucrezia Borgia as being this kind of nasty evil woman. She was so not. Right. She was she was a Franciscan tertiary. She'd taken vows in the Franciscan order. She. Uh, you know, she was all about um, looking after citizens and kind mm. of creating spaces for people to work and, uh, and, and you know, about welfare. She really, she had this deep, deep spiritual conviction. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and she spent a lot of time in the, the convent Corpus Domini. Um, and, where, and she would always go there after, uh, after a, a, a childbirth. Um, and the yeah. nuns would look up. So Leonora had already spent a lot of time in the convent. And so she had, this is where she had to go. And by the time she started having music lessons when she was in the convent, when she was, by the time she's seven years old, her father is paying for keyboard instruments for her. Cool. And her, her, uh, her cousin, uh, her cardinal uncle's illegitimate daughter is also in the convent with her. And the two little girls have got keyboard instruments, um, being bought for them and she is clearly learning from someone um, someone is teaching her music yeah. um, and she when she gets to eight years old it, she's old enough to have a court of her own and her father wants her to come out of the convent and she says mm, 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 mm. she's eight and she knows this is not what she wants to do she may you know girls grow up I've seen letters from very young girls in the 16th century who are extremely aware of what the future holds for them. Yeah. And at eight years old, she was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going. I'm oh yeah. And the guy, and the boys that age are just <laughs> still punching each other and like, <laughs> yeah, completely <laughs> clueless, you know, <laughs> Actually, they're, they're also learning, you know, her, yeah. her, her brothers, could already read and write latin and, oh wow and they were learning musical instruments and everything like that by that you know they they yeah it, it's not that that children didn't have didn't have a childhood but they were they had to know so much and they were individual yeah. so so they learned all of this stuff at a very very young age so that it becomes almost natural to them yeah and i feel like that you know and maybe this is just my perception of history but it, it seems like whoa they emotionally grew up way faster than we do you know and 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 maybe that's a maybe that's a perception thing but it, it's really incredible when you read some of those accounts of just like wow that's pretty amazing so Leonor is there and she is uh she's she can be as intellectual as she likes in the convent and this is you know for her as a princess she might have been able to do all of those things before she was married, but once she was married, she was going to be a baby machine, and that's just basically it. And right. then, you know, if 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 she lives and her husband goes away to war or whatever, she would then be in charge of running the whole shebang. And again, this is what people don't understand about Lucrezia Borgia. She was a brilliant administrator, and so when her husband Alfonso was off fighting uh the italian wars she was running 
the country. She was running yeah. the state, right? She was a brilliant administrator. And that's what, you know, these children, young girls were brought up to do that. Yeah, wow. This. this is not what she wants to do. She's interested in the natural sciences. She's interested in music. She's interested in all of these, these different things. So she stays in the convent and she studies. And, you know, she's a kind of, um, she is a mysterious figure because we only have like we only get little glimpses of her right through letters and um and sometimes there's a very few letters that she writes out that that have, that have remained but what we do start to understand is that by the middle of the century people are taking her very seriously as a yeah. musician and people write about her musical skills and and you know great musicians and music thinkers yeah correspond with her about serious stuff about you know big theoretical issues so right she's she's considered a a, a a great musical thinker as well and so piecing together all these little bits of evidence you know i, I the music that i found it, it seems can only pertain to her and can yeah and knowing that she had oh well i mean she had in the convent she kept in the convent until she died the the 31 key per 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 octave chromatic oh until you know the vicentino keyboard yeah the vicentino keyboard she all right and she keeps it wow she can play it and oh, uh, am, am I? It says my internet connection is unstable. Hmm. Oh, okay. it it glitched for a second, but you're you're back in the clear. Oh, so but she has that, and she has also at her convent. She's got a pietra da contrapunto, which means she's got a big uh, chalkboard for writing polyphony. Wow. Teaching. And this is the only thing that it can be used for, right? So, yeah. so that, when you're when you're composing polyphony and you want to kind of check things out, you've got a big chalkboard and you can do it on your chalkboard and, you can, and then you can rub it off. So right. you know, she had the tools for this really advanced composition. Yeah. Uh, and and it's it, it's almost inconceivable that she wasn't there. And oh, she owned the organs, you know, and she yeah was paying for all the organs. She's she's doing stuff there. But it's, um, you know, it, 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 it's exclusive. The Este were always very exclusive about their music. They, mm. they, they wanted people to know that it was brilliant, but they also wanted to keep it uh, so that they could, you know, they could invite people in and to, mm. to witness their exclusive music. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that's another reason why we don't see a whole lot of what's going on in the convent because not very many people are, are, are allowed to, to witness it. Right. And I, and I think that that's, and it makes me think of, uh, I, there's, it was shocking to me when you said that the women in the convent were more maybe intellectually and emotionally free to explore and experiment and learn and gather than the women of the court. I would have thought my natural perception would have been that that would be backwards. And so, but it makes total sense that she would be into the Vincentino keyboard and all this avant-garde, quote-unquote, avant-garde music because that's what Ferrara was, I mean, that was like the cool, happening, hip, place it's like where all the cool stuff was going down and 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 so if she was free to yeah, yeah exactly and if she was free to explore it then there's 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 no wonder to me that that's yeah. how that came about so yeah and so i mean her her only obligation in is is to is to make music really i mean yes she was she was abbess but she probably got people to do things for her yeah i'm sure um, uh, but uh, and so her only obligation really is to is to make music well wow. and, and that's and and i'm you know i am i am certain i am convinced it took a long time for me to come out with that article um, yeah 
article i i wanted to make sure i really wanted to make sure and it was it was no uh it was no surprise to me when when i we got some reviews saying oh you're only saying it's lucrezia borgia because you just want the sensation i'm like well no no i'm not it's I've been studying this for a decade. Like, <laughs> I've run this past my peers in the Journal of the American Musicological Society, and they're convinced. So, you know, it's, I, I feel, <laughs> terrible, right? yeah, exactly. Like, although, although, and this is, this is the, 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 the I never, I, I thought, oh, lightning cannot strike twice, right? Right. So, I, I've been working for the last sort of five years on this manuscript from Florence. Um, which is, as far as I know, the only kind of really substantial collection of polyphony from a an Italian convent from the 16th century that we still have, and we and we know that it's from a convent, right? Because it's yeah. got names on it. Yeah, so yeah. I'm looking at this 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 manuscript, going, well, okay, so it could be one of two convents. There is the really rich. Because of the way the 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 way the the the, the antiphons and uh, the the repertoire that's in it, I yeah. knew that the, it was a Clarissan of you know a, a poor Claire's convent. I knew that it was from Florence. I knew that it was from a convent dedicated to an apostle. Yeah. So I narrowed it down to two convents: one which was really rich and in the city center. Um, dedicated to San Jacopo, um, oh, so uh, yeah, so dedicated, yeah, dedicated to Saint. I'm, I'm just trying to remember what San Jacopo is in, in, in saying the Saint. It's not Saint James. Yeah, it is Saint James. Yeah, Saint James, um, right? So, so, so he's he's it's that's that's this big rich and um, no, it has an organ and all that stuff. Big rich convent in the in the middle of in the middle of town. And then there is a much smaller, poorer convent in the outskirts beyond the city walls called San Mateo in Archetri, mm. which just happened to be the place where Galileo Galilei's daughter, Suor Maria Celeste, lived about 60 years after the manuscript's date. Oh, wow. She was in charge of the choir for a little while, you know, so and her father was a musician and her father's father was a you know, family of musicians and everything like that and i was like you know what i'm not going to go down that road because i got such a hard time for saying that i found lucrezia borgia's daughter's music that i'm not going to touch it <laughs> right so i go for, i spend loads of time trying to find this manuscript located at san jacopo and i i break my brain trying to do that and then just before the pandemic hit, I was in Italy and I was in Florence and my last thing that I could call up in the archive on the very last day on the very last afternoon, you know, everything, I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's one document from San Mateo. I, I, I'm there with this, with this huge accounts book. And with, again, within minutes of opening it, I find the names of these two nuns. So this manuscript does actually come from the convent of Galileo's daughter. And wow. if you are aware that about 20 years ago, um, Dada Sobel wrote this wonderful book. She transcribed all of her letters. It's called Galileo's Daughter. It became a oh, bestseller. And my uncle just read that right. when they came to visit. And he's like, you have to read this. And I was like, okay, so it's on my list. Yeah, yeah. So it's a beautiful book, you know, but... <laughs> I can't. I couldn't go down that road and then find it's like, oh, okay. You put so, it off and, long enough and <laughs> Well now I found the music from Galileo's daughter's convent. And it's it's so the the manuscript was copied in 1560 and she was there from 1613, 1615. But it's not um it's not such a rich convent that they would have thrown something like that away. Uh, right. ones for whom the you know to whom it belonged would have left it in the convent because it had no value outside the convent right and it's full of you know we're, we're, we're going to be recording from this manuscript uh we've done some of that when our last cd we, we we've got some of the music from the manuscript we are going to be recording much more of that uh quite soon um, cool oh i'm excited it's just you know the the 
it, it's amazing when you when when you when you have access to this stuff that it, it really did mean something to them it wasn't you know i say it's their job and i say it's their you know and they're doing it all the time and they're harmonizing and like that but it is still nonetheless a spiritual com commitment and when they have yeah. this when they when they make the commitment to 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 sing polyphony um and then you know you know that it must have been a really really important thing to them right and, and the count book shows the like all of the things that they did on the on the feast of saint Clair. And the manuscript has all the music for uh, for the Feast of Saint Clair, and and the office tells the story of you know it's of of, of the saint. It's it's like it's 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 also entertainment, right? Because right. They're, they're telling the story of 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 her life and and her becoming a saint and her sister and all this stuff. And so so it's not just it's not just random uh, kind of abstract worship it's also right. telling right it's, yeah it's just amazing. it's so awesome I, i'm really so so i would love to have you on again maybe when that cd comes out to have to, to talk about it because i what i'll do is I'll, I'll post a in the show notes and on our website we do like a blog version of each episode and i'll put on there a link to to the choir's website and a link to all articles that you've written and things because I think it's so one of the things that that's so hard well not so hard but that's difficult for for me and in the United States is like okay cool I have this really advanced women's high school choir and there's like no historical music for single sex ensembles and 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 especially when you know there's usually so many more girls who take choir than than guys that it's like man there's some real opportunity to teach them real polyphony and and how are we going to sing independent line and are you like all the musical principles and then to have access to some of this really historically rich storytelling material on top of it that's like this is like girl power on steroids type stuff and it's it's written for your range and for your age group and for like all that stuff and i think it's it's such so, a great resource so there are i mean I, I there are so many things that i have to say about about young women learning to sing polyphony and access for female voice choirs to to, to this repertoire because you know, for a start, if you look at some of the, there, there's a link between between polyphony and musicology, and you've already said that you know there's this perception that, that you, you mustn't you mustn't touch the score. Well, you know, for the, the score is a lead sheet. That's all it is, right? Yeah. You do all sorts of interesting things with it, but also when you look back about how all of this polyphony comes comes to be accessible in the first part of the 20th century musicologists are are creating editions specifically for college choral societies and glee clubs hmm. and there is this fantastic what well, fantastic i you know quotes uh, <laughs> right by otto kinkeldai who was the first president of the american musicological society who um who's it, it's an article about equal voice music uh, in what he calls the acapella period, and uh, about which, yeah, I, got, I, yeah. I, I have thoughts, right? <laughs> right, so, right. <laughs> That's a whole. Oh my, yeah, I just love it. Okay, but yeah. <laughs> but, but 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 what he says, he says that you know, for this is for for male choirs, it would be okay for for professional women, but but amateur female voices can't really go much below middle C. You know the altos don't have the presence below middle c and i say that and you know my altos go <laughs> oh, no. yeah are you kidding me those are especially and, for altos like don't insult exactly. my low notes are you kidding me <laughs> yeah that's where that, that's where i'm happening right and, 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 the, uh, <laughs> and, and also you know women can sing they are taught to sing 
or yeah. allowed to sing by the kind of Alcanto repertoire. When you're singing polyphony, and especially, especially if you have instruments supporting that lower, that lower bass, and also you you tend to have more women who sing lower, which is great because then you get you get more breadth of sound on those right the kind of parts. But in in my choir, I've got women who go low D's, yeah, no problem. C's, yeah, 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 we'll give it a go. We'll do that, and 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 that then opens up when you've got women who are not afraid to sing in those lower reaches of their voice. And and you know, God give me the confidence of a soprano that wants to sing A's all the time. I want my altos to have that com- that confidence to to sing low D's. And 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 even low C's and certainly E's and yeah, and it's an unpleasant sound. And when it's you know if it's supported by an organ or by uh, by a low stringed instrument like a viol or a cello, it's it's lovely. You hear the words, you hear that texture, and it's yeah. not forced. So so young women can be encouraged to explore that whole range. And that's another thing about this repertoire is that you don't have yes you have some a few kind of specialist specialist parts that where where you might have had one person in the in, in the choir who could sing really high right right so so you check her up there in the gods yeah <laughs> yeah go have fun up there but, but but most of the time with equal voice polyphony you're looking at parts that uh that go down into a mezzo range and up into a soprano range or down into an alto range and up into a mezzo range. They're mostly, you know, an octave and a fourth, an octave and a fifth. Yeah. And so you have to have young women uh, feel unafraid to explore all of their range and not yeah. hold themselves and saying, you know, I'm a soprano or I'm a mezzo or I'm an alto and you come into my choir and you are all of those things, lady. You yeah. Know? <laughs> hundred percent. I will. I, I will excuse you not not singing top. You know, ab- above the staff. <laughs> right. And I will excuse you not singing much below the fish bones, below a low A. <laughs> you know, if you are quite high, but you are not. You know, you're not going to get away with with singing within your your octave, and that's it. You just yeah got to accept doing that stuff. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, if you start singers thinking like that, then, th- then you give them the confidence to do all sorts of stuff. And, you know, you're talking about polyphony. Well, we're used to polyphony being like Palestrina or Bach, where you've got soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Right. And a lot of singers come into my choir, you know, not the professional ensembles, but the, 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 you know, my, the, my, my crack team of, of, of amateur singers. Yeah. So I'm in a mean tone, you know, they've got to do that too. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, they come into my choir and they think they're really good at sight reading. And they probably are very good at sight reading when there's, when they're reading soprano, alto, tenor, bass. But once you get into an equal voice polyphony texture, it's really disorienting. Right. Because your part, you might have the top line in the score and you might be singing in the middle or even at the bottom right of the chord at any at any given time so the the ear training and the sight singing and that, that kind of intervallic confidence that you want from your choral singers so that they are unafraid equal voice polyphony is is the most amazing training ground to have Right. And it, it, I really, I totally agree. And it helps you, you, you tune better and you, you have to sing with better technique because I think tuning is more of a technique issue than an ear issue. But again, that's another podcast episode, but, but there's all kinds of things, right. That, that is inherently learned in that. Yeah. Okay. We're all going to sing polyphony. And we're all in this octave and a fourth range. Yeah. And I, I think it's I think it's awesome. I love that kind. Of, I geek out about yeah, that it, stuff. It, it, and and you know one of the things that now that I'm I am kind of uh, semi-retired. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like emeritus status, right? Yeah. Um, I um I'm developing the Musica Secreta website to provide 
more scores. And in fact, that's what I've been doing this morning. I am, uh, I'm, I'm starting, I'm going to expand the scores that we have available uh, on the site because I've got this, and I've been waiting to do this for such a long time. I have so many transcriptions on my hard drive. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit complicated with, 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 with web sales and this, sure. but I'm sorting it out I'm getting, getting that sorted. So I will very soon have, uh, scores for, for download on the, on the site and what I commit, because I know what this is like when you're trying to find yeah. music for, for an all female, uh, you know, I'll have ranges um, text and translations. All, all of my editions have translations. So on awesome. You really need to know what you're singing and you may, you know, you, you do need to know what each word is, but generally, you know, if, if you don't right. have translation, then it doesn't, it doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. Right. Um, <laughs> and, you, you know, so, so all of that will be will be there um, and available. I've just, just this is just my my summer project is to get this up and running, so yeah. that uh, so so that my musicology life goal of getting <laughs> getting um, more women women's ensembles singing Renaissance music and 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 feeling like they own it because yeah you know, the. The sound of the convent choir was the sound of the Renaissance city, and women own polyphony. And the only reason, only reason, right? Okay, so <laughs> the major reason that, that we have forgotten this is that it is the kind of overwhelming influence of the cathedral, the kind of the choral foundation tradition, where you have choir boys and lay clerks, uh, alto lay clerks, and and tenors and basses um with just men's voices singing all of this glorious polyphony and you know you girls you can't you can't do that right you can't flow you can't sing low we don't and and oh and we don't want instruments with it do we well yes we do the, you know the Sistine Chapel might not have had, had right but everywhere else did yeah and the <laughs> organ doubled everything yeah that yeah and you know when you've got the organ doubling everything what that does for your singers is it means that your singers can phrase no mm. one has to feel like they has to they have to sustain at full voice any pitch mm. so that your so that your harmony doesn't become kind of impoverished yeah you know, that sound that sound of a cappella singing where all the notes are all really sustained and you've got this great blend going on and everything but there each each voice is kind of sublimated into the whole right now you do want to be able to blend that's not that's not blending is not a bad thing but also when you're singing equal voice polyphony if you blend too much you just sound like block chords right and, and a wall of sound which is <laughs> yeah. And, and we're you... not doing Phil Spector, right? You know, <laughs> no, we are not Phil Spector. Women's voices like that. We yeah, exactly. Love to hear the, the different timbre, and so and so again, you can you can you can arrange your your choir so that you've got because uh, everybody's singing more or less the same the same range. You right. can put you can put your really sweet sounding voices together on one part you can put the kind of steely sounding voices on 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 one part you can put the warm voices on another part and when you when when they sing those parts together you hear hear all three parts because they all sound like different instruments that yeah to create this one kind of massive sound the point is to be able to hear each one of those lines and hear them distinctly and not force young voices into technique to kind of matching each other's uh noises so that you all sound the same which right. you know an awful lot of professional early music ensembles the voices are similar because they've been trained in a way to kind to, to suppress their right. own vocal activity to, right. to, a, to a whole. And when you're singing equal voice polyphony, you really do want to hear those vocal, vocal identities. You can, you right. know, and, and it's so 
it's so freeing. It's so freeing for the yeah. summer. <laughs> right. And because and, and that's what makes it. Uh, yeah. And th- my my mentor, uh, Andrew Crane, was my master's professor, but he talked about fishtailing when we do Renaissance. And it's like, yeah, it's like you you crescendo like this. And then when you're day crescendoing, the other part comes in. And that's yeah. really the kind of the layman's explanation because yeah, 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 yeah. we had non non music majors and it's like oh man but even that makes me think of it differently even though i was like in a renaissance class next mm-hmm. hour <clears throat> excuse me but it was like yeah you, the line is everything and the harmony is not necessarily secondary but kind of because mm-hmm. it's it's how these lines move and when you have the different colors i i love that yeah and and singing chants now, I you know, the uh, one of the things about Renaissance polyphony, I know that people get upset when they get they get put on what <laughs> I know some professional ensembles call the Gumby part, right? The Gumby <laughs> Thermos. So <laughs> when you when you're stuck on stuck on the Cantus Thermos, you can't do any of that stuff. But again, you can have some voices that are really effective on the Cantus Thermos because what you want to hear is this beautifully sustained um, and clear cantus firmus. But if you can sing chant, you can sing a cantus firmus, but if you can't, and, and you can sing polyphony, but if you can't sing chant, you can't sing polyphony. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to appreciate the beauty of, uh, of, of a chant line. And that's not just the big melismas, the, you know, the big, the big mountains chant, but even a song, it's just a simple psalm tone, enunciating the words, hearing the words and the rhythm of the words. That's yeah. so important. Polyphony yeah. in 2-2. Two, two. There's a piece by, that I've attributed to Leonora Deste called Eight Dies. If you, if you haven't heard it, you need to go and listen because the bass is rocking along in 5-2-7-2, you know. Yeah. And 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 you want to and and you hear the, the the stresses of the words, you can be you can have a this something that looks like it's beautifully written out in 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 cut time, but actually when you start looking at it, all the parts are are singing triple time. But not together. Oh wow! You know, so you've got it, 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 there's a there's the Rory Christmas Vespers, all four parts are singing in triple time, but the but but the but the beat is is like displaced by one minimum in each. Oh, in each. wow. So you're doing, I mean, this this polyrhythm and how are you going to, you, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, just, you just kind of do this and let yeah, them go. You kind of keep, you keep a tactus, you know, you can, you, you can do this. Yeah. The thing where they are in, in terms of the tactus, but you can't be, be beating three because you, you, you're not an octopus. Right? right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. As much as we all want to be sometimes <laughs> and as much as we try. And you learn all of that stuff from singing chant because you learn about word stresses. You learn about how melodies flow. You also learn not to thunk the very end. You know, most chants end on like a feminine ending. Yeah. And because because many Latin and Italian words have have a, a stress on the first or the penultimate syllable, right? Right, right, right. So you want you want that final chord to lighten up. Yeah. And getting a chord to stop thunking that their perfect cadences and remembering <laughs> that 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 it's a, that it's it's a resolution almost that you just. That you, that you have to line it up. You learn that from singing chant. So, yeah, yeah. Get get kids singing chant. They might go, oh, this is really boring. Get them to harmonize, and it's not so boring anymore. But they're yeah. still singing chant, right? Yeah. Oh man, I am so like this is great because I'm about to leave here in just like two minutes and go teach, and we're gonna do chant as warm up now. I'm just gonna do it. I don't. I I have my lesson plan throwing it out the window we're doing chant today because i'm too excited about it so i'm super pumped about this so you know i'll 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 uh i'll I'll let you know when things are kind of moving on the website and we've got more scores available and and yeah i keep a list of of everyone that i've interviewed too and i kind of like 
put a note on there to kind of like check in and follow up in you know like six months a year or something like that because I, I I really do I think that there's such a great opportunity to continue the advocacy for not just early music but but for building musicianship through early music and bringing it out of the museum right the museum phase was really important but now we can kind of bring it out and so i i think you're doing such amazing work i am just yeah i'm <laughs> i'm so excited about it <laughs> oh it's all it's all too much fun Thank you for tuning into the show today. I hope you had a great time. I did. I loved talking with Laurie. She, man, the diligence, the patience, perseverance, the long game, infinite game type mentality, and the brilliance of her research and uh, is inspiring. So go follow her. Check out her articles and her lectures we'll post uh, some of the articles and stuff referenced in the show notes and make sure you give us a like and a subscribe and a review and a social media follow and all the things to stay up to date we'll catch you next time on early music monday